when I go back home to my home in Louisiana, it was a lot of chaos. Well, I'm the first Siamese twin joined at the chin and neck to survive in medical history. So my parents were pastors, but they weren't Christian. What was preached in our church was not modeled in our home. She had promised her mother that she would marry the first man that made her forget she had scars. I stopped normalizing poor behavior in myself. Dear young married couple, did you grow up in a dysfunctional home? Today, we're interviewing Clifton and Paula Lejeune on how to build a healthy family after a dysfunctional childhood. Yeah, Clifton and Paula are such a neat couple. They've been married for 33 years and they pastor a church in Louisiana for 27 years. They have two incredible kids uh, that are now married and have families of their own. And we learned so much in our interview with them. Um, They both come from intensely uh, adverse childhood upbringing. Um, You're going to hear a lot from both of them. I don't want to spoil it, um, but from medical fragility to abuse um, to multiple marriages from their parents, um, it's just so much that they came from and they were determined with intentionality to create a beautiful and healthy functional family of their own. Yes, this episode is really going to, I think, encourage and motivate you that no matter what you face, you can do it. And also, we want to let you know that we have monthly live date night coming up this Friday, April 15th at 5 p.m. Pacific. We're talking all about EQ, emotional intelligence. So come join us live. You can find the link in the show notes. On to the interview. Welcome, Pastor Clifton and Paula Lejeune to the podcast. We are so honored that you're with us today. Welcome. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank We're you honored. Thank you for this opportunity. Aw, you guys are, uh, you come highly recommended and you guys have done uh, numerous marriage seminars, your pastors, and you guys have quite the story. You've overcome so much, even the little Cliff Notes version that we've read about so far. Yeah, well, your daughter reached out and said, hey, you should think about having these awesome people on your podcast. <laughs> and told us, Yeah, and told us just a, a few things that were like, wow, okay, definitely. I think you have, you're, you're, you have wisdom mm-hmm. to share with us about how to overcome adversity. And I'm sure that's what a lot of people are facing adversity. Yeah. So how, first of all, maybe tell us, um, whoever wants this, maybe Clifton or uh, Clifton, start us off. Like, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, the adversity that you faced. Okay. Um, well, I am 54 years old now, and I came to the Lord when I was 14. My mother was married four times. My dad was her second husband. My uncle was a bandito, his wife, a prostitute, and my brother, a drug dealer. So when I came to the Lord, um, I was uh, raised Catholic, and I'd been asking questions. And um, the questions would always be met with, go ask the priest. So I began to debate the catechism teachers and the priests. And that led me to a path of, 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 of a hunger for truth. And I want to know the answer. And you you have to use the word. What does the word say? So I'm an originalist when it comes to the Bible. And I'm an originalist when it comes to the Constitution. And uh, I'm very analytical in that respect. So as I begin to dig, God began to show me the beauty of Acts 2.38, John 3, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I came to the Lord. And also coming from a broken home, 
when I was a little boy, my mom would ship me on a bus, a Greyhound bus when I was about six years old to Houston, Texas. And that's only about three and a half hours from Jennings, but on the Greyhound, that's about eight hours. So they'd place a lanyard on my neck and push, put me on the Greyhound to go see my dad who was living in Houston and now remarried with a woman, a wonderful woman from Honduras, uh, you know, South America, mm-hmm. Central America. And you were so, six on this yeah. bus with a yeah. lanyard around your neck. Right. Yeah. Six to eight wow. years ago. That happened several times. So of course I love my dad. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm bananas about, uh, I just, I worship him. And again, I'm going to just fill in some of these things, but like the, the word dad is an acronym. DAD stands for designing a destiny. <laughs> That's what dads do. And I think most children, they don't suffer from ADD. They suffer from DADD, daddy mm-hmm. deficit disorder. Yeah. Wow. So the dad was extremely important to me. And I would see him in the summer for two or three weeks at a time. And for those two or three weeks, we would have uh, a supper like when dad would get home. And that was that was structure. And when I go back home to my home in Louisiana, it was it was a lot of chaos. My mother uh, had uh, three boys with my dad, my, my birth father, and the firstborn, his name was Sparky. He died when he was three years old of a tumor, a cancerous tumor. I was born three months before he died. And then she had a third son who died at birth. So when my mom finally divorced my dad and remarried, she simply told me later that she married the first man that she thought would take care of she and I. And she said about eight weeks into it, she realized she made a mistake, but it was too late. She was already pregnant with my other brother. And then she tried to make it work for the next six to eight years. That's where I began my marriage seminars because it was from that amount of fighting and chaos in the home that I made my mind up. I'm not going to live like this, which of course led me to the Lord and led me to what I have in our marriage now. Mm-hmm. So fast forwarding after seeing my dad in the summer for those uh, couple of weeks, seeing the value of structure, the value of coming home from work, supper, their chores, you can't stay out all night, all these little things that I could do when living with my mom, no structure, no discipline. And that, of course, led to me getting in trouble and doing some different things as well. Mm-hmm. So that led me to the Lord at the age of 14 when I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and was uh, baptized, of course, in Jesus name and became a member of this church for 12 years in Jennings, Louisiana. And we've been pastoring it for the last 27 years. So that's wow. me. In a nutshell. Oh, there's so much to unpack in that story. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. You're yeah. not a stranger to loss and um dysfunction in the family growing up but what a testimony and we're looking forward to hearing more of it we want to hear from you as well paula um share with us a little bit about your story and upbringing around adversity well uh i'll start with i was born a conjoined twin and i'm five years older than cliff so i'm almost 59 and uh so my mom was not expecting twins, much less uh, conjoined twins, because they didn't have the technology today. So I was born in a clinic, and when I was born, they had the doctor and medical staff had to determine who to save because they didn't have the manpower to save both of us. And we were both critical because my twin had died previous to birth and she was poisoning my mom and I. So my mom had like boils. So they placed me to the side because I had a 20 month old sister at home. Oh my and they, uh, when they had my mom stable, they came to check on me, which during that process, they had checked on me and I didn't have a pulse or a heartbeat. So he knew he had done the right thing. 
But when they came back afterwards, I had began breathing on my own. So they sent me to New Orleans uh, Charity Hospital, and I had a few surgeries there. And uh, I've had over 30 surgeries, so I grew up with all the surgeries were done on my chin and neck. So it's impossible to hide scars unless you wear a bag on your head. And uh, that wasn't an option. But uh, So the, the self-esteem from looking different, which I really didn't realize I was different till I started school mm-hmm. because I was the celebrity in the hospital. I'm the first Siamese twin joined at the chin and neck to survive in medical history. Wow. Well, and I'm the only Siamese twin I know. But uh, my parents were not very well off. Like I said, we, uh, I was at a charity hospital for years. And then they got insurance and I moved around to different hospitals. But so they, we weren't well off. Uh, dressed poorly. Um, my parents were in were not in church when I was born, so my dad would often refer to me as the judge, judgment of God on his life for oh, not wow. living for God. So there, add scars to being uh, labeled as my the judgment of God for my dad's wow. sins. And when I was about three, my parents got in church again. And God called my dad to preach. And when I was about seven, he took a church here in Jennings where we pastor. And I remember him being abusive before that, but not bad. So my parents were pastors, but they weren't Christians. What was preached in our church was not modeled in our home. And my dad was verbally, physically, emotionally abusive. And so all those things just added to the low self-esteem I already had. And because you, uh, most children get their view of God from their dad, the God that I was taught to serve was always looking for a reason to punish us. And so I got married with that mindset that, you know, if things were good, then I could look for the bad to start happening. So watching my parents argue and fight just, I mean, that birth marriage seminars, I did not know it at the time, but I knew what I didn't want. And I was determined to figure out a way to create the life that I felt like our family should have lived. I didn't want to be in ministry, though. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, because ministry represented so much to you. So much pain, yes. So much pain, so much chaos and dysfunction, again, to kind of mimic the theme of your husband's story. Such different stories, but you guys both grew up in such adversity. Yeah. Right. Wow. Did the abuse continue um, when your dad started pastoring? Oh, absolutely. It got worse. Hmm. While he was pastoring, um, I don't know if it was just that my dad was physically abused as a child. I didn't learn that till later. And he just decided to share that gift with the rest of us and pass it on. So, yes, Mm -hmm. until my dad died, he was abusive, maybe not physically 
after we got married, but definitely um, emotionally and verbally abusive until he died. So even as an adult, you received the emotional and verbal abuse from him? Yes. I was 24 years old the last time my dad hit me and I'm talking, I'm not talking about with a belt. I'm talking with his fist. And I got married at 25 and my husband knew none of that because I was ashamed. I didn't, it was not something you talked about. No one talked about that. Right. I mean, even now, uh, how many years later, you know, that's 30 something years later. I don't think people talk about it much, especially when it has to do with the, you know, the abuser being someone in leadership. Right. Now, why do you think that is? And this is a question for both of you. Start with you, Paula. Why do you think it is that the church is so silent about sharing a victim's story, a victim who became a victor when you overcame adversity? You're sharing your story. Why is the church at large so silent about sharing stories like that? I can only answer what I think from my dad's perspective. Um, He was more worried about what his peers thought than what we thought. And so it was always like a double lifestyle. So none of that could come out or he couldn't admit to being abusive and I sure couldn't take him down. I thought he would kill me if I ever told. So so intense fear. Uh, yes, definitely fear. Like I've seen my dad, you know, pull a gun and threaten us. So I sh- and he wasn't afraid to act out in public. So I was never, you know, it was a fear for me. For him, it was uh, even when we confronted him later in life, he he never really admitted to anything. He was more worried about what people thought about him. So Cliff said it best um, in probably one of a sermon or marriage seminar. He was right to the wrong people Mm. and wrong to the right people. Mm. Wow. Wow. My parents cover up. There was a lot of sexual abuse in our church. Mm. Um, Mm. My parents were both having affairs and you know, the, the anointing flows down good yeah. and bad. So there was a lot of immorality in our church. And yeah. uh, my sisters and I were all sexually abused by people in our church before we were in junior high. My goodness. And my dad did know about a lot of those, but no one was ever put out of our church or it was never brought to the police. You or weren't protected. No. No. Wow. No, the hospital was my safe place and school. I bet. My Mm. goodness. Why do you think from a pastoral perspective, Pastor Clifton, why, why do people keep silent about, um, you know, fallen leadership really, but specifically abuse in the church? Uh, the church is cursed with a fear of reality. In my opinion, hmm. we, we need a, we need a baptism of honesty. People are attracted to genuineness. They are attracted to authenticity, not, not the word authentic, not the word vintage, but to actual 
authenticity. Mm. I, uh, I, I play with words a lot. You'll find this out quickly, but the gospel only works with people in the 4-H club. If you're not in the 4-H club, the gospel can't help you. And the 4-Hs are the hurting, the hungry, the humble, and the honest. Mm. And of those 4-Hs, only one begins with a silent H, and it's the one you can't be silent about, honest. It's the word honesty. When the Bible says to confess, the word confess, the Latin phrase means to own. It's through confession that you obtain possession. Mm-hmm. So as a church, we have to be honest about these things. Uh, I, I preach from a position of honesty. Uh, if I told the church, if I could only preach what I practice, then I could only preach on eating, sleeping, breathing, and going to the restroom. Because those are the four things that I never fail to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, you know, I have a little phrase that we use in our marriage seminars. We strive for the ideal, but we live in the real. Mm. Here's the impossible command. Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect. That's the impossible command. Right. Be ye therefore perfect, even as our, your father in heaven is perfect. Well, how can that possibly be? Well, you, you trace that word perfect to the book of Hebrews. And the Bible talks about the blood of bulls and goats could never make the comers there into perfect as pertaining to conscience. Mm. The word perfect there, I've got to have a clean conscience. Not perfect as in I've never made a mistake. Not perfect as without flaw but perfectly clean in the eyes of Christ. And I often tell people, if you allow me to baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ, you will become guilty of every sin Christ committed. And he committed no sins. So it's this beauty, it's this beauty of the blood, this beauty of understanding the efficacy of of atonement and and not being afraid because the blood works. It it doesn't work just for the the non-believer and all those people, all those wicked, evil sinners out there. It's, It's for us. It's for the Christians that live day by day, not overcome with guilt and condemnation. I preach a lot about guilt, a gob. Uh, I have tons of messages that deal specifically with this issue. And I just, this past Sunday, my message was titled, The Limited Power of Projection. And the, the principle is simple. Projection only works when there is a reflection. A projector is of no value without a reflector. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So you can have a hundred thousand lumens, powerful projector, but if it doesn't have a canvas, a carcass to reflect upon, then it's of no value. So Satan projects guilt and guilt is a powerful manipulator. I have a message titled the unholy Trinity. The unholy Trinity is in the book of Genesis. It's fear and guilt built on a foundation of lies, lies, fabricate fear, intimidates, guilt, manipulates. When you have the power of intimidation, manipulation, and um, whatever the other one was, you have omnipotence. And so guilt is a powerful uh, enemy. And if the church doesn't know how to handle guilt, then we are always going to be manipulated into some false thing. To, we, we have this pretense. We have this, this symbolism over substance. And so we hide all of this stuff here. It, it shouldn't be hidden. We, we have to be honest. Uh, and that will attract people to us. It, it, this goes to a political realm. If Bill Clinton would have fessed up in, in the 90s, you know what? I made a mistake. I'm a dirtbag. I've been unfaithful my whole life. I have this problem with sexual addiction. If he'd have said that, oh, my God, his legacy. Right. Mm. Just yeah. be honest. OK, OK, you're a human being. And the same thing is true, I believe, in ministry. And I know there are people who take issue with this. But I believe as a pastor, I do not want to portray a Christianity that cannot be lived. Yeah, I do not want to portray a Christianity that only the, the super intelligent and the highly gifted and the highly anointed. The only that is not. Now, there are some things that we can do. I made a vow to God when I was 14 that I would pray every day that I'd read the Bible every day. I've kept that vow for 39 years. I've read the word every day. I pray every day. I fast almost every week except for uh, days that end in Y. Other than that, then I'm... (laughs) 
<laughs> oh man. So, we're keep I love it real. that though. That's it's so good. And you're right. There is some controversy over that. Some leaders don't want to portray a sense of reality and being transparent with their shortcomings. Yeah. I, I think we just, we, we forget that really important verse in James. It says we have to confess our faults one to another because if, if nobody can be transparent, Right. Uh, we're, we're all going to be living in this alternate reality. Yeah. Yes. Well, Christ made sure he did not uh, hide the flaws of the men that we look to in scripture. Right. I can find fault with every so last one of them mm -hmm. beginning. You can talk, we can talk about Paul or Peter or Thomas. I doubt it. Whoever you want to talk about <laughs> uh, these guys all have their, so all of their thorns, I, I preached the message a while back about thorns, the, the crown of thorns. There will be no thornless Christians in heaven. Every Christian is going to heaven with a thorn. Every last yeah. one of them. Yeah. And, and, and Christ let Paul's thorn. We don't know what his thorn was, but whatever his thorn was, he didn't need stripes for healing. So I don't believe his thorn had to do with a physical impairment. He needed grace. That's and Christ right. said, my grace is sufficient. Paul's thorn in his flesh was a thorn, his carnality. He had a problem with his sin. I call it the uh, the sin that that so easily beset us. You know, right. that sin that we all pray for. Lord, if you could just get rid of this, this yeah. one thing. Oh, my God. Couldn't I serve you better if you just get this one? We all have that yeah. one. God, thing. help me not want to blank. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if that one thing, and to me, that was Paul's thorn. That one yeah. thing, yeah. just yeah. one thing, please, Lord. Mm -hmm. But no, no, I'm going to save you with your thorn. And, and in fact, what thorns do is prick. And I believe it was Christ who told Paul, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Mm -hmm. It was a qualifying characteristic of Paul. I'm attracted. God's attracted to men who find it difficult to kick against the pricks. He had a conscience. And although he was doing the wrong thing, his heart was in the right place. Mm -hmm. And so I think whenever we have our own thorns that prick our conscience, God's attracted to that. Why would God deliver Paul from the very thing that drew Paul to Christ? So yeah. I'm not I'm not ashamed of my thorns. I I, I know I have them, but I'm going to be honest about them. And I that attracts that to people. Then people can be delivered from stuff that they own. And the reason we don't confess our sins, as the Bible says, we confess yeah. it one to another is because we confess it to one and then it goes to another. <laughs> right. Yes, that's true. That's yeah. an integrity issue. And so that goes back to the to the real fruit of the spirit and, right. and honesty, integrity. Uh, the Bible says to forbear one another. Well, what does that mean? That means I have to tolerate. And I don't have to be told to tolerate someone that I like or agree with. I have to tolerate people I don't like and I don't agree with. That means in the, in the body of Christ, there's supposed to be people I don't like and I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. So I have to be able to to confess to someone that I can trust. And I always tell people when I'm mentoring them, you confess up. You don't confess across. You don't confess down. You confess yeah. up. You That's confess good. to someone who's been where you are and has overcome. That's I don't good. need a peer to enable me to continue in my sin. Oh, yeah, bro. I'm going through All the right. same thing. You know, I know I need someone who's been down the line and has overcome some things. Mm -hmm. And that's what a mentor looks like. Yes. yes. Right. That's wow. so good. So. What you said is just so, so good. Maybe bring that back to, okay, your story. Both of you are young, like kind of where we left off. And you have a lot of bruising. You have a lot mm -hmm. of pain. What happens next? How do you guys become the influencers that you are, the, the pastors that you are? Like, there had to have been a lot of God working in you and you working on you and other people working on you in order to do what you've done. Tell us a little bit about that process. 
For me, it was a lot of soul searching. I think probably the major changes began when I started having children. I have two girls who are both married now and two amazing sons-in-law. So they chose well, and we all have a very good relationship. But I realized I was repeating some of the cycles that I hated from my parents, mm. the, um, not abuse in uh, physical abuse or anything, but uh, my parents would, uh, if they got mad, they would leave, uh, blow up first, leave and come back hours or days later. Mm. And they were over it. And so no one could talk about it. Mm -hmm. So if I got angry, I did leave a couple of times, not for hours or days, but I remember driving away how I felt. Yeah. And so I was like, I can't do that to my kids. And I would come back and apologize. And I think after I only remember doing that a couple of times and then I hated that I had to say I was wrong. So that was probably, <laughs> uh, I may have had a right to be angry at whatever was happening, but I overreacted right. and I was just very intent on not continuing that cycle. Yeah. And so I became accountable, not just to my pastor, but to my kids and my husband, like this behavior is wrong. And I think that was some of the change is, I stopped normalizing poor behavior in myself. I had already drawn lines and boundaries with my family, but I had to stop normalizing it in myself. And I did not want my kids to have the relationship with me or no relationship like I had with my parents. And um, also about 10 or 11 years ago, uh, uh, some friends of ours asked us to do a marriage seminar at their church. And we had done a few before that. The majority were for our church. And so we knew our church's problems, but going outside of our church was different. So I began reading books and trying to get material. And over the last 10 years, what by stretching to do that, God healed the scars in my heart. Mm. That's amazing. That's a powerful uh, message in and of itself. Right. When you when you stretch yourself to help others, God starts to heal you. Yeah. That's yes. Beautiful. The biggest the book that had the biggest impact in my life was Enemies of the Heart by Andy Stanley. If you've okay. never read it, um, he walks you through forgiveness, and that was a big deal. Uh, I had, it took years to forgive my dad. That probably only happened after my mom died in 2014. My dad passed away in 2013. Okay. And so it was after that, that I finally, I was an adult with wow. grown kids in college before yeah. I learned how to forgive. Tell us what you learned there, because I think there's a lot of people that probably struggle with that, especially with the yeah. stories like yours that's. They've been hurt so incredibly bad. Mm -hmm. And now they're like, I don't know what even that looks like. What is forgiveness? Well, he walks, he does steps and I'm going to probably butcher this, but he talks about 
writing down when you're angry at someone, it's because something has been taken. And so to forgive, you have to know specifically what they took from you. And he encourages you to write that down. And so I had to write down my dad took holidays from me. My dad took my childhood from me. My dad took uh, birthdays and vacations because he would blow up and storm out and vacations would get cut short or holidays would just be over. So I had to think what was really taken and write that down and then verbalize it. Say out loud, Dad, I forgive you for Christmas of whatever year for storming out and then not allowing us to talk about it when you come back. And when I I did this multiple times talking to an empty chair in a room by myself. Yep. Until I got it out of me. And now when I talk about the abuse in my childhood or teenage years to early adult, it's like I'm talking about someone else. Because you've truly processed it and forgiven. Yeah. And another sermon I heard uh, when he talked on forgiveness, he said, when you've forgiven, you tell God if on judgment day you need an account against him, I'm not going to be that witness against him. So I will not be the witness against my father getting into heaven. If he's repented, he he deserves the same grace and mercy that I need. That's powerful. Yeah, for you to be able to say that. Yeah. That is powerful. I hope people are listening too cuz you know we asked Adam asked what what does forgiveness look like? How you know what were some of those practical steps? And most people would think that what you said is the opposite of forgiveness, right? Like acknowledging the pain and and yeah. listing out what he took from you. Mm-hmm. Some people would say like, "Oh, that's that's just making it bigger." Well, we call that avoidance. <laughs> yeah. So, I think people are, you know, are stuck in a pattern of avoidance when they think they're forgiving. But yes, they need forgiveness is giving someone permission to continue to hurt you also. Exactly. And that, yeah. that is, and that's, that's not stop. it. It's the exact opposite. Exactly. Wow. What boundaries did you guys have to set up in order for your wife to not continually be you know be hurt over and over and over again we'll be right back to the interview but first we wanted to share something that we are really excited about so you know we all have those times where we don't feel super connected to our spouse and we really don't know what conversations to have to get us to that connected place and then on top of that we're so busy that we don't prioritize those conversations and that's why we created the monthly live date night And Monthly Live Date Night is every month on a Friday night for 90 minutes, 60 minutes. We focus on a topic that uh, you guys pick. And then 30 minutes, we do a QA and a and it's live where we're all together asking questions and giving answers on topics related to your marriage, your intimacy. And we share tools. Uh, We have handouts that we call homework because we want you to be there to listen and to soak in. But we really want you to take action in your marriage too. So come join us live for the next monthly live date night. Check the link in the show notes for dates and details. All right. Back to the interview. Um, I am probably... uh I have a gift of, of seeing what most people can't see, which means I'm often oblivious to the obvious. Yes. I can't see what everyone sees. And that's also a part of my gifting, which of course makes me appear to be dumb in some respects. So 
I fell in love with Paul when I was 14. I had just received the Holy Ghost. She told you we're five years apart. She was 19 starting college. I was just starting high school. And when I saw her, I was smitten. I instantly fell in love. And uh, I asked her out and she said, you don't even have a driver's license. I said, where are we going? So you actually asked her out at 14? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) There's confidence for you right there. Absolutely. And uh, she said, you don't have a driver's license. I said, well, will you let me take you? I want to get one. She says, we'll see. So two months later, March 6, 1983, I got my driver's license. It was a Thursday and our midweek service was on Thursday. Okay. And I came to church waving my driver's license saying, look what I got. And so <laughs> she agreed to let me take her out. And we went on our first date. It was a double. He looked old for his age. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't tell you he was 14 yet, right? Oh, I knew. I knew. But he was very mature for 14 and uh, our church was small but i didn't go out with him at 14 i was 15 yeah i went out <laughs> 15, which he looked old enough where and i tell this story because he makes me sound like a pedophile <laughs> <laughs> he went to our parish jail and asked to go up where like the murderers were and everything asked to go up and minister. They never checked his ID. They let him up upstairs where the jail was. And he's like jumping up and down because he gets to see a real prison. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. so that uh, that night when we went out, I just knew this is the one I told my mom, I'm going to marry this. And oh, you're no, no, no. So anyway, long story short, I've been crazy about Paula. I would date other girls and she would date other guys. But every girl I'd ever date would end up breaking up with me because somewhere along the line, I would say something stupid like, have you ever met Paula Lorman? Do, do you know Paula? <laughs> and of course, like a moron, they'd, they, you know, I'm stupid. Why is everybody breaking up with me? And so finally, uh, it, we're, we'll pass some of the story up, but we, we start dating seriously uh, my senior, uh, my freshman year in college and, and get engaged. And we get married August 13th, 1988. And I cannot believe I got her. It blows my mind <laughs> that I got her. I have been crazy about this person my, since I was a, a boy. And, and so whenever we had problems, my prayer, and I'm, the, I'm the, the new hyper, I'm the soul winner, the Bible study teacher, the praiser, I'm crazy. Sure. Brother, my father had me preaching when I was 14 years old. So as soon as I get the Holy Ghost, I'm preaching. I'm preaching Sunday nights when I'm 15. Wow. I'm in the jails. I'm in the nursing yeah. homes. I'm everywhere. I'm like, I've been preaching since, again, since 1983. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm this new convert that's setting the church on fire. Of course, I'm completely oblivious to all this. All I know is I see it. Right. And this is what I want. This is the answer to all my problems. Oh my God. And it's cost me everything. My family disowns me, my friends, all that stuff, yeah. which is a whole nother subject, but you have to buy the truth. Truth has to be paid for. You don't yeah. respect what you don't pay for. So, so anyway, I'm crazy about Paula. We get married and I am not of the mindset that Paula has problems. I'm aware that we have problems in our marriage and I don't know what the problem is. So my prayer is make me a better husband. Help me. I never prayed for God to fix Paula. That was never my focus. And it's not because I'm some altruistic person. It's just, it it just wasn't, it didn't occur to me. No more than it occurred to me that Paula had scars. Like I didn't date Paula because she had scars or fell in love with her because it's just like, just like she had a nose and ears like everybody else does. I I don't, it it means nothing to me. I I love you. I want you with your toes, with your feet, with everything. I don't care. So uh, as the marriage would progress, there'd be problems that would come along and, and Paul would get very miserable and, and, and I couldn't figure out what the problem was. 
And I remember one time in particular, in the early stages of our marriage, uh, she, she would get mad and, and, and she'd be upset and, and it's bad. And it's always been bad. And I'm, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, but it it right? That's right. <laughs> so we'd get past this. Like she said, she'd get upset and then get better. And we couldn't discuss it. So about a week yeah. and a half later, we're, we're driving in the car and I'm going, Hey honey. And she goes, what? I said, uh, we're, we're good. Right. She goes, yeah. And I'm like, okay. Um, I said, so like, we're, we're really good, huh? And she goes, yeah, what's wrong with you? I'm like, mm -hmm, nothing, nothing. And I'm driving thinking, okay, now let's remember this in October of 89, Paula says it's good. And it's always been good. So when it's bad and she says it's always been bad. No, 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 no. You remember, she says it was good. So I, there's a principle I'll share at the end of our discussion that I learned from that. Right. And, and, and from that, though, it's, it's I believe if a person truly loves love covers a multitude of sins, mm. love doesn't uncover, love doesn't expose right. and love doesn't right. exploit. Mm. And I absolutely love Paula. Always have, always will. She is the love of my life. Mm. Love of my life. And in what I have is what I always wanted. Mm. And that was a happy home. Yes. A safe yes. place. Yes. My, well, we both wanted yes. was a safe, yes. good home life, stable, uh, with a routine and yes. boundaries. Yes. And, yeah. And those yeah. So for your question, though, like for me, it was to reduce my expectations for my family mm. and limit the time I spent with them. Mm -hmm. uh, my children never spent a lot of time alone or any time alone with my family, mm -hmm. with my dad. Yeah. I never left them with him. Even when Smart. he married the next two women, he was married three times. Wow. Um, but he was not a sitter for my kids. He really didn't know my kids very well. Um, my mom did a little better, but not much. Um, yeah. Wow. She was a little more involved later in her life. So the only boundaries. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. No. Well, boundaries and just reduce your expectations. Okay. Like, when my dad would see us, it was all about him. He would tell us what was going on in his life. And yeah. so that's all we expected. If we're going to spend time, we're going to spend time listening to him talk about him. Uh. So you expected that. It was just like, we're not going to go in hoping for something different because this oh, no. is the reality of things. No. Yeah. As you know, the, the root of offense is unmet expectations. And so learning to overcome by literally intentionally lowering expectations. And if right. we use a numerical scale, if I thought her dad was a 10, I had to expect a three. So when he behaved as a four, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And the same was with other members of my family where uh, the, the only person that truly uh, celebrated me and, and uh, was there for me was my mother. And uh, I got the privilege of becoming her pastor when she was 52 years old, May the 2nd, 1999. Mm -hmm. So after mom had been through all that she's been through and all the marriages and all that stuff, she receives the Holy Ghost and is baptized. And a year and a half later, she's diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Oh, my goodness. And she dies. Uh, she gets a di diagnosis in August of 2001 and dies January 22nd, 2002 <sighs> at the age of 54 years old. But she died right with the Lord. She was an amazing, Aww. amazing awesome, loving mother. And I wrote about her in, in a little bit in my book. And That's what's, incredible. what's sad is um, like when, when I'm telling the story of, of my mother and growing up, 
and I, I, from the outside looking in, people might say, well, your mother was a terrible person. I was like, you have to know the story. And, yeah. and again, that's what history is. You have to know the story, the context. So if you just take one frame out of her life and try to project that onto her whole life, well, sure, she's terrible. But if you take that in the context of the whole film, the frame isn't the film. It's, it's just the frame. Yeah. And uh, but mom was celebrated me. I could do no wrong. You know, uh, that's probably why I got in trouble with my mouth a bunch in school. <laughs> <laughs> was there but anyway but what paula said i totally concur with it is setting boundaries and they were hard boundaries like my family on my mother's side was very racist on my mother's side um a lot of vulgarities a lot of crime uh we got kicked out of disney world when i was eight years old because of my family stealing my grandmother my mom and my uncle they're all stealing souvenirs Mm -hmm. during the parade and so we got evicted out of disney world until we could never go back I mean, and so all this in my mind, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't ever go back to Disney World. You know, I'm eight years old. And uh, but this was this is my normal. Yeah. And so coming to the Lord and, and getting exposed to all this, even under a pastor who I would hear use cuss words, a pastor who would literally beat up members of the church with his fists, a pastor who was having an affair, a pastor who was emotionally abusive. None of that mattered because I saw this truth. And it came from this individual. God helped me through that. So I don't care. I don't care what he does. I believe this. And so when whenever he left the church, whenever all this, whenever we became pastor, it was a ruse. He he was having an affair with a woman and that woman's husband had found out and he had had a, a child with this woman and the husband when he finds out, goes to Paula's dad and says, if you don't resign, I'm going to tell. So that was whenever he came to me in November of 94 and says, it's God's will for you to be the pastor. And I'm like, no, I just reached my first youth camp in 94 and I was just getting exposed. And uh, man, I'm starting to get invitations. I'm like, this is my getting off. I'm ready to hit the road. No, the pastor. Well, his, I think what his deal was, he wanted me to take the church so that this could blow over and then he'd take it back. So I agreed to take the church on a temporary basis just for six months as an interim, so to speak. But in those six months, people begin to receive the Holy Ghost. We take ownership and then we get. And their affairs came out in those six months. We had no clue. Our church had no clue. Mm. So all that came out. So he, we wow. knew he couldn't come back. Yeah. And the church was running about 120. And a year and a half later, we got it up to 50. Hmm. Wow. So we started our own church reduction services. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I, I'm sure that that's brokenness that just kind of yeah. spreads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because like we're not sleeping with the women. I'm not uh, adult, committing but adultery. Again, my family's falling apart. Our church yeah. is falling apart. But honestly, I know we were where God needed us to be to start a, a different foundation mm-hmm. because my sisters, I have four sisters. When they go to church, they come to church with us. Mm-hmm. Um, my children, of course, we live just a totally different life than I saw growing up. Yeah. And so we redid the foundation with God's help, even though it was painful. Yeah. Uh, people in our church before they leave sometime would say, you know, tell me, you know, what your parents did is just so hard on me. And I just would apologize, but I wanted to be like, uh, you think this is easy for me? Right. If holidays weren't hard enough, try having your parents in different homes. And uh, in fact, we started leaving town for Thanksgiving because 
we just didn't want to deal with family for well, that. That's well, a boundary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, her mother was having an affair with her boss of 20 years who was 30 years older than her. Oh, and, and a year and a half after we become pastors, she marries, she divorces my father-in-law and within 48 hours marries this old gentleman. Uh-huh. And then a year and a day later, her father marries his nephew's ex-wife, who is the age of his oldest daughter. We could I can't even compute all that. I'm wow. telling you, reality TV. It's it oh, is unbelievable. It is it's so, it's so many details and so deep. Yeah, you guys, you guys have built the life you've always wanted. You both have kind of mentioned that or alluded to it. You've built the life you've always wanted. You've built the family and the church that you've always dreamed of, desired, and envisioned. So it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. Talk oh, to us about that process. Um, and maybe if you can share a little bit about, um, your book, cause your book captures some of this as well. Yes. Yes. So the books, I'll start from the backwards and work my way around. Okay. Same thing. The book is titled, um, lost in the woods. Wood mm. is the past tense of will. It's a book about the lost art of intentionality in the woods. You find lions and bears. And the reason you barely make it is you've been lying to yourself. Lost in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks oh. who are just listening and they're not viewing this, he held up the book and it's lost in the woods. W O U L D S. Yes. So I love wordplay. I love etymology. I love puns, cliches. I, there has to be a hook. I want you to remember what I've said. The 4-H club, you'll never hear that phrase again without remembering oh wait wait wait, wait. Yes. what is it the hurting hungry home and by the way those four h's are found in matthew 5 and matthew 5 he said blessed they which do hunger he said blessed they which do mourn there's the hurting blessed are the meek there's the humble and blessed are the pure in heart there's the honest so mm-hmm. all four h's are in matthew 5. Okay. so the book is about the lost art of intentionality so the way the church became what it is i believe is through intention it was all on purpose yes. i have what i always wanted this is not an accident eden and aaron getting married uh, at the age of 24 they're virgins when they get married and they marry men that I described to them when they were children. I told them when they were girls, I've seen your husband. Oh, daddy, what does he look like? Is he, does he have red hair? No, no, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I know his character right now. He's seeking God right now. He's preparing himself for you. He's talking to God about you. And so I presented this to them and projected that into their future. And so they ended up marrying exactly who I described two amazing men. Who, it's just, just gorgeous. You can have it. Now that doesn't mean that it always works. Um, as a matter of fact, I I preached a message recently titled train wrecks, train up a child the way you should go. Ah, So I talked about train wrecks and uh, the number one cause of train wrecks literally is human error. So we can remove that by not being in error in raising up our children. And of course, children learn by modeling. All of this is intention. The church, what it is and where is, is a reflection of the pastor. My DNA, my spiritual DNA is going to get into that church. And so I was taught when I first became pastor, the first five years of your pastor, you're dealing with another man's problems. Mm-hmm. But after five years, that church is a reflection of who you are. So I remember in the sixth year of pastoring, looking at the audience and going, this is aggravating because I teach Bible studies. I'm a worshiper. I'm consistent and I'm faithful. And this does not reflect who I am. It took longer than five years for us. But the church that I pastor today, you can find on Facebook, Jesus Worship Center or JesusWorshipCenter.com or on our YouTube page. The church that I work, I pastor today, there is no place, no place I'd rather be on Sunday morning than Jesus Worship Center. None. It is the no judgment zone. We do have a dress code and the code is you come dressed. (laughs) (laughs) And we are targeting a specific group of people 
And that group of people is um, the ones that are living and breathing. Breathing. <laughs> I almost finished that people. sentence for you. Yes. <laughs> I could tell. We love people. I don't yes. care. We love. Now I preach hard against sin. Yeah. But we love sinners. We love mm. people. And so the church has that environment, that passion, that that energy, that that enthusiasm. I preached a message about the letter G. I, somebody said, well, Clifton, where do you got your energy from? I get my energy from my inner G. It's the G in me that provides my energy. <laughs> and of course, the letter G is a unit of measure used to describe the amount of force it takes to overcome the pull of Earth's gravity. So fighter pilots experience certain Gs of force. And so the greater the G in me, the less pull Earth has on me. Ah, and so uh, I've uh, this this th- these principles are in the church. And so in in service, uh, y- you will feel that that love, that passion, that worship, that there's probably no need for a seat because few people are sitting down. Uh, last year, our congregation is about 350 right now, 360. Last year, we had 119 baptized in Jesus name and 92 filled with the Holy Ghost. Wow. And uh, that was a, a very good year for us. But it's it's a it's a place for for it, we call it the no judgment zone it's it's, it's a hashtag the no judgment zone you seem and to really embrace that you know christ was full of grace and full of truth, truth. Yeah. he didn't yes. err on one side or the other yes. and you yes. seem to really embrace yeah. full grace yes. and full truth i am i am absolutely death on the doctrine there's yeah. no vacillation there's no i have debated priests you name it phds yes. i i, and I can, we both still teach several bible studies a week yes beautiful so Again, we are very yes yeah. Another one of our credos, you got to give it to get it. Yes. Got it? Good. Because if you don't give it, you won't get it. Got it? <laughs> Good. Our daughters and sons-in-law teach Bible studies. And I'm going to answer your question more on, I'm not going to give you any wow uh, revelation. That's not me. I'm very practical. I'm practical, Paula. <laughs> you guys are a great team. <laughs> Um, the changes that I made, which some of this is in Andy Stanley's book, but I figured this out before I ever read it because I only got the book in 2013. Um, when the I realized that whenever I was angry growing up or acting out, no one found out why I was acting different than I normally would. Mm -hmm. And so as children, like you're told, I'm going to spank you if you don't straighten up. Well, why are they not behaving correctly? So when my girls would come home and be angry, first, I would set a timer and say, you have, you know, depending on how mad they were, you have 15 minutes, you can be as angry as you want to be. Uh, You can't break anything and you can't, uh, you can't, you know, do anything that we wouldn't allow. You can't call people names or right. use bad language, but you can be mad for 15 minutes. Yeah, and that's emotional safety with boundaries. Yeah, let them be angry. And then we would sit and talk about why were you so mad? Why were you acting like this? Another thing we implemented was uh, the family uh, discussion where I, we would call everyone into the living room and uh, they have their own version of this. They were like, okay, it wasn't like everybody got a written invitation. It was Cliff and I sitting in the living room saying, girls come in here. And they came in dragging their feet. But in the family discussion, again, we had rules. Everybody gets a voice. No one can uh, talk down to anyone else. Everybody's opinion matters. Dad and I still have the say so, but your voice is heard. 
And Good. so as my girls grew up, they got used to this and they used it on their jobs. My youngest daughter is a nurse. My oldest daughter, like he said, was a teacher for seven years before she started her own homeschool pod. So wow. it changed the dynamics of what was going on inside of our home. That's good leadership, leadership yeah. in the home. And they use the same principles outside the home. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's so so um, we use again, uh, you know what a leader is, right? A leader is just a little more than a quart. <laughs> and a quart. <laughs> and a quart is a commonly accepted standard unit of measure. A leader, therefore, is just a little bit more than what's commonly accepted as standard normal. A leader. Okay. So that vow about reading the Bible daily as a pastor right. and a dad, one of the things I wanted to make sure was that my children were getting this. Now, even though they're raised in our home and they hear all, all the time, one of the things that we did as a family that I believe really contributed to my girls remaining in the church and not just being, not just enduring it, but enjoying it yeah. was I challenged them to read the Bible with me all the way through one year. And what we did, we did it as a family. So we read the Bible out loud as a family. So we used the one year Bible reading plan. And we're, we're going in a circle in our living room and I would read two verses, then Paula would read two verses, then Eden and Aaron and so forth. And it's just, it, this isn't a preaching time. This is just fun time. And of course, and I'm going to say something, hopefully you don't have to bleep it out, but Aaron's reading and she says, uh, okay. And then God smote the Assyrians. I'm like, Aaron, it's the Assyrian. It's the Assyrians. <laughs> so the beauty of this was we got to discuss the word of God every single day. We went on vacation that year to Cabo San Lucas. We carried our Bibles with us. I have a picture of us on the balcony at a resort in Cabo and we're reading the Bible. We were very intentional that we didn't skip a single day. And at the end of a year, and then when they had friends come over, it didn't matter. We're, we're reading. Every, yep. every Everybody single, read. We all read. It was cool. And I, when Song we, of Solomon was interesting. We oh, I bet. <laughs> I bet we assigned parts and let them yeah. read it. So it was funny. at the end of a year, we were done. I said, okay, girls, we're done. We made it all the way through. You know, they read every single story. Every single word was read out loud, spoken out loud, which again, that adds so much to the atmosphere of the home, that mm -hmm. the word of God being spoken out loud. Oh, and at the end of that year, they said, well, do we have to stop? Can we go again? I'm like, yeah. And so we did it two years in a row. Oh, and, and that was, good. I think, one of the one of the great highlights of our parenting uh, before the girls were married. And I'm not sure what year that was, if it was 2013, 14, 12, 12 13, 12 and 13. 13 14. Yeah. So about 10 years ago. So they were uh, they were late in their teen years, maybe yes. early 20s. Uh, but that allowed us to make sure that they were internalizing the word of God. It wasn't just being preached, you know, because they have to hear it. Of course, they hear it from dad and they love me. They love my preaching. And I'm very grateful for that. But are they getting it? And they've attended Bible studies with us. They've seen us teach Bible studies in homes. They've seen the Search for Truth chart. They've watched us do this a thousand times. But are they getting it? Yeah. And it goes back to the principle. You have to give it to get it. Right. It'd be awesome if there was a oh, wait, wait, there's a scripture. Give and it shall be given. You have to give it to get it. And the reason so many children in our churches aren't getting it is because they don't give it. It's not enough for them to hear it. That's giving, that's receiving yeah. it. They, they have to give it. it. Yes. yes. So that process of hearing it and repeating it, all of those, those, I know there's psychological terms for this stuff, but at, whenever they're articulating those principles, it's getting in their heart. Mm -hmm. And if it's not from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah. And so if it's in their mouth, it had to come from their heart. So I know if they're articulating it, it's getting out of their head into their heart. Mm -hmm. And so now 
I've been teaching a Bible study at Wells High School for the last 27 years called CIA Christians in Action. It's no secret to be in his service. Get it? Secret service. <laughs> so you are this, hilarious. This is something, uh, but putting me in front of sinners for all these years is what's, in my opinion, what's kept me fresh, relevant, always digging, always searching, always trying to come up with a creative way to communicate the gospel. And if we are in an echo chamber, of only hearing people who believe what we believe and never having our beliefs challenged, then we never get our, shaw- our sword sharp. Mm-hmm. And I, I want that. I want a question that I can't answer. I want my daughters, I want my sons-in-law to have that experience. And I believe that's contributed. So they've gotten, I've got what, uh, you know, men will say, Clifton, you have no idea how blessed you are, that your daughters, both married men who love you, respect you. We just came back from a two week vacation. on. Uh, we rented an RV for two weeks and for two weeks, were in the same vehicle, had a blast, came home on a Friday, and then on Saturday, they're all back here again for our it big was morning all breakfast. seven of us for two Aww. weeks. Yes. That's so, so cool. again, That is a it, blessing it, for sure. We, we not just love each other, we enjoy being around each other and being with each other. And that's and something that you guys had to be intentional about creating. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and all those people that are listening, there are so many tips. and ideas that can be implemented that I wouldn't say are easy to do, but I think they're simple. Yeah. Yeah, They're very practical. You guys have really broken it down and that's, that's so valuable. Before we wrap things up, I want to hear a little bit about your book, Sister Paula. So share, share about the book that you wrote for folks. Well, mine is The Perfectly Imperfect Princess, and I know they can't see, but it was a story I wrote when I had to speak at our Louisiana youth camp for the junior high girls. And so in an effort to connect, every girl wants to be a princess and have a fairy tale written. So I wrote my biography in a fairy tale format so that I could connect to them. And the story went over well, and then... From that story, you can go off, talk about self-esteem, talk about, because I knew what I couldn't change were the scars, but I could change getting an education. Those were things that were in my control, Mm -hmm. Uh, just the way I dressed. And uh, I talked a lot about my shoe collection um, because, you know, when when I was young, we were very poor. So clothes were a big deal. And uh, so there's just so many things that I could talk on from my book. So I would use it in other speeches for women or church groups. And people started asking if I had the story in a book so they could take it home. So it took um, probably 10 more years for me to really start working on getting it into a book. And it came out in 2020. It is available on Amazon, although it's only paperback. You have to get a hardback from me, which I prefer. Okay. Okay. So we'll we'll link that in the show notes then for both of your books. Also, the resource that you mentioned from Andy Stanley. We'll put all of that in the show notes so people can just click it. Excellent. Yeah. So she's she's leaving out something that's extremely important about her book. Okay. Because in her book, she makes a statement that I only discovered after being married to her for about 26 years. And uh, we were at a conference and Paula is speaking. Uh, it's a ladies event. And she says out loud she, in, in, in some form or fashion, this basic sentence, which is in the book. And it was simply this, that she had promised her mother that she would marry the first man that made her forget she had scars. Mm. 
Now I'm sitting in the audience when Paula says this and I'm dumbfounded because I had never heard this before. And I, my daughter Eden is sitting right next to me and I'm like going, uh, I didn't know this. I didn't, I didn't know. I'm telling you when God stretched me, he really started healing me. And what it says in the book is he, I realized when I'm with him that he saw past my physical scars so well, I didn't see him anymore. That's beautiful. I love it. That's yeah. beautiful. So yeah. it's, it's, she's an amazing, amazing human being um, and, and has an amazing story. Mm-hmm. And it's, if I'm do, I, I do motivational speaking also. So I'm not just a pastor. I, I speak in the secular. And when I'm speaking in a secular setting, if I'm ever floundering, if I ever feel like I've lost my audience, all I have to do is tell Paul a story mm-hmm. instantly. Instantly, I get a visual aid. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are a dynamic inspiration. You're an incredible team, and it's been an honor to interview you today. Thank you very much. You guys are awesome. We always ask one question at the end of every uh, interview. So the question is, rewind back to your first couple years of marriage. You guys have been married for 33 years now. And ask yourselves this question, what advice do I wish I would have received? And then fill in the blank, dear young married couple. All right. Dear young married couple, the problem in your life is not learning to love your neighbor. Like the scripture says, it's learning to love yourself. I really felt like if I would have worked on loving me, I would have made things smoother in the first few years of our marriage. Wow. So good. Love it. That's a whole different like podcast episode. That's an entire episode. So good. Thank you. How about for you? Uh, Dear young married couple, specifically husband, with a woman, feelings are facts. True. I I understood that. And that goes back to the story about Paula in the car saying it's bad and it's always been bad. Mm -hmm. What she was doing, uh, she is heart oriented and the male is head oriented. The woman was taken from the rib to protect the heart. She she's a heart person. And and so her needs are met emotionally. The man's are met physically. And so we go through these principles. But had I known that with a woman, feelings are facts that would have changed so much for me, because when Paula said it's bad, it's always been bad. That's not really the truth. She's not a liar. She's a woman. Yeah. And those are her feelings. And at that moment, those feelings are so real and so raw. It is a fact. Yeah. And so with a woman, two plus two can be 39. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, she feels it. <laughs> and if the man thinks he's going to convince her that two plus two is four, he is sadly mistaken. Did you try? Oh, absolutely. Because I, I'm, I'm a man. I'm, I, that's what I'm saying. Had I known this, yes. had I you understood tune it, in to her experience. Yes. So all of our marriage seminars, and like I said, we've written, we've done over 50 marriage seminars, soon to be 60. And uh, I've written about 16 different ones. And it's the same principle with what you're doing. It's I'm taking a principle, an overarching theme and plugging in marital principles into this. That's and, awesome. uh, but that one principle about feelings are facts. That is a simple principle I can speak 15 minutes on. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not a, a discrimination or a criticism. 
it, it's just an observation right. of, of how we're wired differently. Yeah. We, we got our, men have our issues for crying out loud. Uh, but Not understanding really. that, <laughs> knowing that would have saved me. It took me probably, matter of fact, her sister one time, she said something. We had been married like 17, 18 years. And Paula's oldest sister, Jeanette, she says, Clifton, don't you realize that Paula thinks out loud? <laughs> I'm going, oh my God. <laughs> you hit the Paula jackpot right here. When she's muttering, I'm like, to me, she's accusing me of something. Mm-hmm. So she's walking through the kitchen. She's going, oh, I got to put the dishes in the dishwasher. And then I've got to mop the floor. I'm thinking, okay, so you're upset with me because I didn't mop the floor and I didn't put the dishes in the dishwasher. No, no, that's oh, okay. She's just she's thinking out loud. Processor. Had yeah. I heard, had I known that in the first 20 years of my marriage. Oh my God. That would have saved me so much. It's this just is not a short answer. Yeah. <laughs> it, it all builds on the same thing with but a woman. It is, facts. But that is true. Yeah. That is true. Well, thank you guys so much for the wisdom that you're pouring into us so and um, all the stories. And my goodness, it's it's really a pleasure to meet you all. It is. All right, folks. So go get their books. You can find them in the show notes, Lost in the Woods, W-O-U-L-D-S, and The Perfectly Imperfect Princess. Um, we're looking forward to diving into those resources as both well. Both of those are available on Amazon, and the hardback would be available from us directly. Yeah. And okay. the way to find that is peoplemover.us. All right, peoplemover.us. We'll put that in the show notes Perfect. as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you. All right, friends. We really hope that you got a ton out of today's conversation. And if you want help, if you want personal guidance with individual counseling or couples counseling, or even help with you as a couple reaching the goals you have, just reach out. Give us a call at 916-678-1797 or shoot us an email at hello at dearyoungmarriedcouple.com. No matter where you are in the world or in your marriage, we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward progress. We also post marriage advice regularly on our Instagram, which is at Dear Young Married Couple. And we'd love for you to join us in conversation there. All right. See you next week. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.